0: On today's show, an unprecedented wave of worker strikes. Uh, We have a school principal who's taking an unconventional approach to anonymous social media accounts, and the Biden administration has proposed sweeping changes to antitrust enforcement. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectic. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta.
1: And I'm Ricky Thott.
0: All right, Ricky, I've got some travel coming up. I'm going to quiz you on a couple of things. Uh, I just okay. want to know intergenerationally whether any of this resonates with you. Okay. When you think of Waco, Texas, what do you think about?
1: Nothing. I don't know anything about it.
0: Okay. It was the site of this famous Branch Davidian thing that happened in the 90s. You should look it up. It's pretty crazy. But I'm going there because they have a wave pool.
1: The famous what thing that happened in the 90s? I don't even know what we're talking about. David crash really uh, the
0: Branch Davidians. I think you'll find it interesting because it was it's been a a bit of a libertarian cause since you'll okay. definitely find this fascinating. There's a really great Netflix docu-series with original footage of it. And actually given that you don't you know nothing about you know it, nothing about you're going to find it fascinating. I actually okay. showed it to somebody who wasn't born in the United States and they were riveted by it. And definitely from an a libertarian perspective, you will find it fascinating and it was a huge moment of the 90s. So, all right. So that's first thing. The second is, does the name Ryan Atwood mean anything to you?
1: No. Am I just looking stupid for the entire first minute of our no, podcast? No, this is I not stupid. No this is a generational no, thing. I have no idea. Uh,
0: so Ryan Atwood was a, was the main character in The O.C., which was a television show. Does the, does the O.C. mean anything to you, Orange County?
1: Is that like 90210? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, my
0: know. God. I Listeners no are going to have a field day with this. So the OC was this show in the sort of early 2000s that was a sensation. Uh, And uh, there was the main character is this guy named Ryan Atwood. But the actor who played Ryan Atwood is this guy named Ben McKenzie, who is now a crypto skeptic. So I'm actually really going down to Texas because I'm going down to the Texas Tribune Fest. Every year I interview somebody at the Texas Tribune Fest. Shout out to those folks. Uh, And this year I have Ben McKenzie, the actor, and he is going to talk about why crypto sucks. And I'm going to interview him about that. So... You know, shout out to You better to steal, man,
1: on my behalf.
0: I am. Actually, I have a lot of friends in the crypto industry who sent me some really good questions. But the, my mo- my biggest goal is just to become friends with with Ryan because I was a, I'm was a big OC guy. And, you know, I, I'm not sure I could be totally objective, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best. And then I head down to the Power Monkey Fitness Camp in Tennessee. Shout out to them. I think this is their 20th anniversary. Sadie Durant, longtime listener, who's the one who invited us to come to Portland, Oregon. So I'm going down there. There's a uh, it's it's this uh, fitness camp run by Olympic gymnasts and CrossFitters, uh, and so I'm going go down there and celebrate with them. And then I'm off to India at the end of next week. So it's a uh, it's a crazy series of travel: India, then Israel, Sri Lanka, then hopefully back to the United States. And so actually, feeling. this is actually a good opportunity to mention to the audience that you and I are both kind of setting out. You've got your book tour going on. I've got to go to across the world for some working for an investigative series that we're working on and that means that we'll be a little uneven to the audience and so we're going to we're going to find opportunities to continue to update on current events over the course of the next month and a half but we will also have sort of evergreen content and long form interviews that we've been doing over the course of the past few months and in in certain cases right now uh, and so hang in there with our us audience i actually think some of these episodes are are some of the best ones we've ever done. Uh, But we will depart from structure for a little while.
1: And definitely introduce you to some new voices that you might not have heard of, but um, we'll definitely find a lot of common ground with if you're interested in what we're doing here. But this quiz in the beginning, I have to say this is triggering me right now because yesterday I was on Fox and I didn't know that Varney does trivia at the end of his show. And the question was um, what year the Revolutionary War ended? Would you be able to answer that off the cuff?
0: That it ended? Yes. Oh my God. Uh, So, okay. Declaration of Independence, 1776, 4, 3, 1801? What? No, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Wait. Okay. It's, It's 1783.
0: 17, oh, 76. No, I would have said, eight uh, sorry, I, I was going to, I meant 1781 for four okay. years. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, not eighty one Bad, Bad math. Bad okay. math. Um, so I, said I, I got it right, but okay. I
1: made the mistake of telling him I was a history major during the ad break. And then I got grilled on live TV, like, oh, here's your answer. So anyways. This I is just, a bit
0: of a meander, but have you heard sorry. this statistic on the internet? No, I, don't, I'm, no, I, I was going to add to the meandering, but the, have you heard the statistic about ha- what percentage of men in the United States think about ancient Rome? Have you, are you familiar with this? Yeah, and I around? think
1: about it constantly, yeah, like same, more so. than most men.
0: <laughs> so I don't know
1: what that says about me.
0: I don't know why. It's Spent funny. Too I don't much
1: time on the birth control pill or something.
0: What's funny? Oh, actually, well, <laughs> but the 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 I thought you were off of that, but we're no, the, I'm
1: off now, but I still um, think about Rome.
0: You still think about Rome. I am. I'm, I'm, Struggling to find the connection between those two things, but I'm going to leave that. But what (laughs) I I think is fascinating is how little most people who think about Rome probably know about Rome.
1: What do you think about when you think about it, though? Like, what aspect? Is it the military conquest thing? Mm. Because I think that's a more masculine thing.
0: I think of it because of a couple of reasons. One is I listen, my favorite, the only podcast I pay for is this podcast called The Rest is History. It's, a, it's two British historians who are absolutely on fire historians about, and they basically pick a new topic every week. But they always kind of come back to Rome as a comparison point. So given that I listen to that, you know, every couple of days, almost every day, I think about that. I also, because of certain authors I love, like Ryan Holiday are kind of steeped in Roman history, so I think those are two of the sort of biggest reasons why I think I think about Rome a lot. But I, it's a funny meme because it does ring true. It, it, we seem to really talk a lot about Rome, I, and I was just in Rome like not too long ago. So, yeah, I don't I know. Ju-
1: I asked my mom about it, and she thinks I'm a nut for thinking about it, but I think about it more in the sense that. Oftentimes in my day-to-day life I feel like I see something or observe something where I'm like, this is fall of round stuff. Like the writing's on the wall. So for me, it's like the imminent collapse of society that I think is oh, wow. before us. But
0: the actually as a as a shout out to the rest of history guys, you don't need me to shout them out. But if you want a good entry point into that podcast, listen to the Pompeii episode that they did a little while ago. I don't know if that's gated or not, because they they charge for some of their backlog catalog, but it's crazy. Just like what happened in Pompeii and They're Naples, wild. generally, and all that, and just like you know, they they go through like detail by detail the the sort of day in the life of people who are affected, and it's I don't even know how they know that information, but it's 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 crazy, awesome. Well, okay, back to present time. Wait,
1: how often do you think about Rome before we go? I just need my to know answer to that
0: question when I was asked about this recently, I said every other day. Yeah, I said the my, same thing. Yeah. Huh. So interesting. Perhaps more now that I'm aware. Probably every day now, while this meme is out there.
1: Do you think they had strikes in ancient Rome? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a really good I, transition.
0: Well, I mean, the most famous worker strike was Spartacus, where you know the the slaves revolted. I mean, that's like probably the most extreme form of strike you can have. So there this it is. A really, is. an, an artful
1: transition. But <laughs> I think' I credit for
0: my Spartacus transition. <laughs> yeah, you had you had um, an
1: anecdote. Speaking of strikes. The Labor Department just issued a new report that found that we've lost 4.1 million days of work in just the last month, which is a staggering statistic. That's the highest that it's been since 2000 as a result of strikes. And I feel like there's been a, I think it was August of 2000. I feel like there's been, for like the past couple of decades, a sense that unions were losing their power and were somewhat on the way out. And then all of a sudden, there's this like mega resurgence right now. So we'll talk about um, later in this segment what's going on in Hollywood and um, the Screen Actors Guild and the writers. But um, there was also a, a massive United Auto Workers Union a uh, strike that across three factories recently ravi and um what's going on over there
0: yeah well this started friday this is affecting nearly 1 in 10 unionized workers at auto factories and this is a new strategy for them for a couple of reasons meaning the the UAW which is under new leadership their their current president is the first president they've ever had that actually was elected by their members which is a whole separate question as to how they were doing it before this guy named Sean Fain. Uh, and he's employing a very aggressive new strategy. Number one, having workers at the all each of the big three striking mm-hmm. all together, but also it's like a rolling strike. So they've picked a few factories and basically they're going to expand strike to more and more factories over time if this moves on. And they're also operating with a war chest. So they have an $825 million strike fund, uh, which means the striking wor- workers will receive $500 a week from the union. Which, uh, you know, obviously, like when that's on the table, it, you know, is kind of a subtle, if not explicit way to say to the, the companies that, hey, we can continue this for a while. And, you know, it's, I would say, side note, better than perhaps the taxpayers of California paying for strikers, which we'll get to, uh, which is on the table right now. Um, and what is the union asking for? Well, uh, one is a 36% pay increase over four years. Uh, But I think it's the benefits that are going to become the biggest sticking point. They're asking for a restoration of cost of living pay raises an end to sort of these tiers of wages that they have for factory jobs that are a source of contention, a 32 hour week with 40 hours of pay, the restoration of traditional defined benefit pensions for new hires uh, who are now pushed to 401k style retirement plans and pension increases for uh, existing retirees. And so this is a lot to ask for, Ricky.
1: A four-day work week, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, like, you know, getting paid for 32-hour week when you're getting 40 hours of pay. I think that this is being billed as the workers against the executives who don't look great here. They've they've actually, you know, the, the, the context here was during 2008, workers were asked to make concessions to keep these companies alive. And over the period since then, Executive compensation has increased. Profits, in many cases, have increased for these companies, but the workers uh, feel that their pay has been stagnant. And the American people seem to be, by and large, behind them. 67% of Americans say they approve of labor unions generally, 75% say they side with the UAW in these negotiations, Ricky.
1: What is your sense on whether any of this will actually work out in the end? I mean, the four day work week thing feels exceptionally optimistic to me.
0: Well, GM and Ford have proposed a 20% pay increase and uh, agreed to the cost of living adjustments. But in the backdrop of all of this, like, but it seems like they're far apart on the benefit side of things. And one of the reasons why is that the economics here are really bad. And that's why I think although the executives don't look great here, this is not just a labor versus executives piece. This is a unionized versus non-unionized battle, but also a big three versus electric vehicle uh, manufacturers like Tesla battle. And uh, there are a couple of things going on here in the background. And And Liz Peek in the New York Sun gave some helpful data here writing that hourly labor costs for the big three today, including wages and benefits, average $66 an hour compared to $45 an hour at Tesla and a fraction of that of Chinese plants. If the UAW gets their demands, that would go to $136 for hourly labor costs. So that's 136 compared to $45 an hour. And so it's possible that the workers here get what they're asking for, but in the end, this could lead to like some really, really tough economics for the automakers. Uh, And, and, you know, the politics of this are getting interesting too, Ricky, because the UAW, which traditionally is like a backer of Democrats has refused at the moment to back Biden in part, because they blame him because of the, uh, Electric vehicle subsidies. They feel like the subsidies for electric vehicles are actually one of the competitive forces that are making life hard for these unionized workers because electric vehicles require less human labor than traditional combustion uh, engines do, and so there's a there's a bit of an anger uh, at Biden over that. I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle, as our friend Isaac Saul talked about in a really good tangle piece this week. Like even if you got rid of the electric subsidies, like. The momentum is there for electric vehicles and, you know, it's just very little anybody could do or would want to do to stop it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then meanwhile, we have drama unfolding in the Hollywood world where um, the Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Arts and the Writers Guild of America are all striking in protest of um, a variety of issues specifically to do with um, streamers and residual payments, a- alleging that they're a gig economy inside of a union workforce um, based on the the popularity of streaming platforms and how they actually get material. Um, they're looking for more upfront pay, higher minimum pay, more writers per show, and to regulate how AI can interact with their trade going forward. And this has been going on now um, since the the writer's strike started four and a half months ago. And there's now potentially some light at the end of the tunnel, but at a point in time when there wasn't, we had a couple television personalities come out and say, we're going to resume our our show, including uh, Drew Barrymore, the talk and my friend Bill Maher recently. And All of them have since walked that back. Um, Drew Barrymore perhaps in the most dramatic fashion of all with a, a video crying about
0: that. I deeply apologize to writers. I deeply apologize to unions. I deeply apologize.
1: I wanted to own a decision so that it wasn't a PR protected situation and I would just take full responsibility for my actions. I know there's just nothing I can do that will make this okay for those. It is not okay with this is bigger than me and there are other people's jobs on the line. I want to just put one foot in front of the other and make a show that's there for people, regardless of anything else that's happening in the world. The funny part is is she's saying she's not going off the, or she was trying to not make it a PR thing. You can see her eyes like looking off to the side where she's clearly reading something, but yeah, I don't know. So she, she obviously walked that back in pretty dramatic fashion when it essentially she was accused of torpedoing all of the um, writers leverage, I guess, supposedly by going back on and Bill Maher had a similar reversal though significantly less dramatic I would add um where he he said at first it was time to bring people back to work and there was no light at the end of the tunnel and then just yesterday tweeted out my decision to return to work was made when it seemed nothing was happening and there was no end to this stri- no end in sight to the strike now that both sides have agreed to go back to the negotiation table I'm going to delay the return of real-time comma for now period. And so there are negotiations that are happening this week, um, and we don't really have much detail or insight into that. But apparently, at least in in Mars' view, this is closer to a resolution than he anticipated
0: in the first place. I think when it comes to this strike, there are a couple notable things. Uh, one is this is being pitched as like a union or a series of unions: the WGA and the Screen Actors against a sort of united front of producers, but I actually don't see the producers as united here. The producers uh, are not all operating under the same pressures. So the if you're Amazon and you're Apple, you really don't care that much. You have very profitable businesses, and this is kind of a luxury for you, right? If you are Disney, this is existential. You're already like, starting to you know, jettison certain key parts of your business. There's ru- all sorts of rumors about different aspects of Disney's business that they're selling. Like That's pretty significant. Uh, and there are certain studios that you'd think would be profitable during this period of time, like Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, which announced recently that they have a 300 to $500 million hit on their earnings in 2023. And that is the company that released Barbie. So it had like one of the most successful movies of all time during this period of time. So, and then as we've talked about with Netflix, who I think is like if Tesla is the winner of the UAW strikes, I continue to believe that Netflix is the winner of this strike because of what we talked about before—the huge bank of international content, you know, the the ease at which they can create reality TV. Series like you know Love Is Blind or Squid Games or things not Squid Games um, Power Physical One Hundred like they they have like a never ending series of stuff that they can pull out of their existing catalog that people had never seen before or just like reality TV which isn't covered by this uh, so uh, but I, I do have some thoughts on Barrymore and and Mar beyond what I've <laughs> I've shared but b- before I go on there ricky do you have any sense i know that you're kind of plugged into some of these worlds Do you have any sense of like when and how this would end
1: the details on this negotiation is very very opaque i would say that i knowing bill and like knowing that world and how tapped in he is if he is felt strong because he's a type of guy that like dedicates himself to his decisions i feel like he's not one to to wimp out and and capitulate to social pressure. He knew what he was getting himself into with this one. So I would say if he's reversing course, there's probably some meaningful promises that this could at least be closer to a finishing line. But I I don't have any knowledge beyond that. And I don't think anyone really does. That seems to be the... Um, basically, all the reporting I've seen on this has been like, we don't really know what the details are of what these negotiations are going to provide in the end, um, this week. But one thing, another layer that, um, I think we should touch on quickly before we wrap up this segment is the fact that California lawmakers are now trying to make a provision that it's up to new some other who'll sign this, that they would these striking, uh, employees would be allowed to get unemployment checks during this period of time, which I mean, I can be sympathetic to the fact that like sometimes union membership is coercive and then having to not have an income for four and a half months then becomes coercive. But at the same time, like this is basically the government showing up and exerting pressure on these companies that pay taxes and, and line their pockets. So I'm, I'm yeah, not you, I don't think that makes any sense at all whatsoever. And I doubt Newsom will sign it. I don't
0: know. I don't know. If, I don't, I don't know enough about the politics of, of California. You know, there are a lot of voters, so I'm not sure how he would treat that. Like, but I th- like a lot of voters who would stand to benefit from this. And anytime there's a concentrated benefit and diffused cost, I can count on politicians to make the wrong decision. And in this mm. case, the, the concentrated benefit are the writers and the actors and everything else is diffused. And like, will will there be enough people outraged by it? I don't know, but I'm no expert on know. California politics. I'll tell you I was- why I
1: think why I think he won't is because he's demonstrated. I mean, first of all, these are the corporations that are still stuck in California and paying taxes while everyone else that can leave has left. But he also demonstrated a huge amount of like deference to them, especially in the pandemic when there were ridiculously strict lockdown policies for like small businesses and mom and pop shops and restaurants and, and people just trying to make their daily work. And then Hollywood was allowed to just like waltz through all the protections and stuff like that. So he's, he's too cozy with them to, to, snub them in this way. I I feel maybe I'll be wrong, but I think
0: Yeah, is- well, we'll see. May, it will, will be a sort of friendly wager on it. I I do agree with you that like the whole purpose of unemployment benefits is for people who are unemployed not by choice, right? That yeah. is the that is the foundation of unemployment benefits even in an aggressive state like New York. Like in New York, for instance, if you lose your job and you Aren't actively pursuing new work, they will come after you. Like for instance, if you travel to Europe or something in the middle of your unemployment period or whatever, that could be used against you um, in you know in unemployment claims. Uh, and actually, in certain cases, like I, I and different companies I've I worked for have had open unemployment claims and have spoken to unemployment office in New York, where they're like, well, like if that person's like. Or out of the country or whatever, you can go after them. I've never gone after anybody for their unemployment. It's not its not my prerogative. But uh, you definitely could do it, even a place like New York. So the idea that you would pay people who are voluntarily out of work, no matter how just their cause, seems wrong. But on the, the, the Mar Barrymore piece, it's a little tricky, I think, about what's going on here. So Barrymore is a member of SAG-AFTRA. Her show is not a part of the contract with SAG-AFTRA, so not as uh, screen actors because it's like a live, semi-live television show, uh, which is not about actors, right? But it does have writers. It's covered by the WGA contract, and she did something that Ellen DeGeneres kind of pioneered the last time around, which was say, hey, I'm back, but I'm not using my writers, uh, and and DeGeneres was claiming that she was ad libbing her monologue, and and that was a very deliberate communication because she's saying I'm not even writing because if she's writing her own monologue, then she's still writing, right? And so I think in this case, both Barrymore and Mar are trying to or we're trying to thread a very thin needle here and. I I think like by and large, maybe it's where I come from. I come from a very union heavy place, even if I've been skeptical of some of like the big picture union stuff, where I come from being a scab is the worst thing you possibly can be. And if I were them, I wouldn't go anywhere near this. Like you could disagree with some of the sort of strategies of unions, but I think unless it's like an existential issue, like you don't have police on the streets or something and people are dying, you should never cross this picket line. That's just like an American rule. You don't do it. Jordan, for instance, you know, gave up his basketball career to play baseball and sided with the baseball players there and refused to play baseball when the scabs were out there playing. It's just an American tradition. You don't cross picket lines. So I'm glad they took a step that back. It looks here. like
1: no one is. So good. better get in there and start negotiating because I want to go on Bill Maher.
0: <laughs> I know. I, I was <laughs> I was thinking about you for that because I feel like the timing couldn't be worse for you given that your book is coming yep.
1: up but that's okay. I'm only showing my hands now at the end of this segment.
0: It's okay um, to be self-interested, <laughs> you know? Um, it's a bummer. I mean, obviously, like, a lot of people out there, like, in all seriousness, are, you know, they people are losing houses. I have a lot of friends of course, who are who are writers, actors, producers. Yeah. yeah. I was just on the phone with a guy yesterday over at one of the big agencies, and he was telling me that even the agencies are seeing this, like, CAA, which represents me, has had a lot of layoffs. Uh, and so or at least according to the, their rival agent who I was talking to yesterday. So, I think that like there's a Hollywood and this is where Newsom is in a tough bind, like there is a lot of suffering going on here and as we've described in previous segments, actors, writers, people, we look at them because they have such prestige in our society. But a lot of these people don't make a lot of money and now are making no money. And just if you're listening at home, you just think about well what would it mean to make no money? Like you know, no matter what trade you're in, like obviously that's devastating.
1: So Ravi, you sent along this interesting article um, about a high school in Queens called Francis Lewis High School, where the principal David Marmore is going pretty hard against these anonymous Instagram accounts. There's a, appear to be a pair of them. One that it has since disappeared. Um, but he wrote a letter to his 4,000 students saying pretty significantly, essentially, well, I'll back up first. Essentially these, uh, these accounts are anonymous Instagram accounts that take like gossipy tips from people and will post them anonymously about others in the school community. And obviously the, like anyone who's concerned about bullying, that's like alarm bells instantaneously or like due process in any way, shape or form. And so This principal was really not having it. um, And he's threatening now to potentially suspend people who still follow these accounts um, to withhold recommendation letters, to shut down extracurricular celebrations like senior prom, um, senior trips and pep rallies, uh, unless these individual students withdraw or stop following these accounts, which, you know, I think there's. I actually don't know where I come out on this one. Um I think that there's considerable first amendment concerns especially considering that this is a public school. I think that that's one important delineation because I went to a private school where a very similar sort of account popped up and I don't think that the the school went after it, but they've had they had a lot more leeway in terms of being able to go after people with social media and cyberbullying. Um but then there's also like a very legitimate opposite side in my view where, you know, there's people saying that there's somebody else and posting something like, I don't like black people with someone's Mm -hmm. name signed to it or Mm -hmm. anonymously saying that certain students have STIs, um, a lot of really yucky allegations that are being aggregated and posted. And so I understand entirely why this principal wants to do something about it. I just don't know what he can do.
0: Yeah, I have some very, very pointed thoughts on this, but before I get to those, let me say at the outset that no matter where you come on down on this, this is obviously a problem. So the question is, what's the solution? Like, I think any reasonable person would say this is a problem. So I, given I haven't run a school in a few years, I took this to people I know who do run schools, and so I asked a bunch of principals about this this morning, and, and I'll read you a couple of responses I got back. So this is from one, uh, and I'll leave these anonymous just because I didn't ask, I didn't tell people I use their names, but. Uh, this is from one principal, or this in this case, a superintendent. This seems unenforceable, if not illegal. Kids will find a way to follow the account. I would talk to the kids about it, but I don't think there's much you can do. Banning it is the surest way to draw attention. Good application of the Streisand effect. But beyond the principal's rule, these kinds of accounts are really toxic. I wish the social media companies would rein them in. Disgruntled employees or kids can easily make defamatory claims on them with very little to stop them. So that's one account. And I think... I agree with that person, by and large. I, I also think that the social media companies are not bound by the First Amendment in this way, right? They're not government regulating speech. So, if I'm a, if I'm you know Meta or I'm Twitter or whatever, uh, I would have a team in place to interface with schools. And I think if a school, you know, guidance counselor sends me a message saying, "Here's this account. This is what it's doing. Can you take it down?" There's no reason why you can't take that down. Uh, and you can't just be like, Hey, like we are part of a community and as a part of a community, we don't want accounts making anonymous malicious claims about children.
1: Is there anything that would prevent a principal from doing that at this point in time though, considering you can report accounts?
0: You can report accounts. And actually, uh, that's, uh, I'll get to some of the other people, but when we're tallying what I would do, this is one of the things I would do. Uh, and and sort of cut to the chase on this. Like, I, I forget what the metaphor is that, like, if you look at a swan in the lake, they look like they're gliding across very seamlessly, but under it, they're kind of paddling, right? Uh, and like really furiously as a pr- school principal, that would be the kind of ethos I would be giving, right? When I'm talking to the students, I'm going to be calm. I'm not going to be like, hey, <laughs> like,
1: um, Robbie, swan this, will hopefully
0: make, <laughs> this will hopefully make some sense, which is- Oh, like, I get it. I'm just- that, Meaning, like, I don't want to look like I'm rattled and like that I'm like uh, out for blood or whatever. I would be like, "Look, this is not who we are. This is what our values are." Yada yada yada. I'd bring the parents in and enlist their help. Uh, but under the surface, I would be ruthless with the uh, the perpetrators of this. Number one, the problem I
1: would- is, you. How do you find out who the perpetrator is, though? That's one of the biggest issues. Is that you can't figure out who runs the account and you can't figure out who's providing the tips.
0: I do think there are a couple of things you could do. One is you can um, you could send messages to the social media accounts and certain cases, threatening letters, legal letters to them, and try to get them to take it down. That's number one. Number two is you can enlist the help of parents who, by and large, know a lot more than we do. And you know, in these articles, both the New York Post article about this and in the Chalkbeat article by Alex Zimmerman, parents, by and large, including the head of, I think, the PTA, are generally behind this principle, even though this is taking, I think, too aggressive action. So you could bring those parents in and they're often, they have more access to more information than anybody else. And then the third is any well-functioning school is going to have two things. One is a set of values that aren't perfectly embodied in the student body, but they they have a language around it and a culture around it. Hopefully that's true. So you can, you know, the students who are the victims of this account um, know more than you do, and you can make it in their interests to behave in certain ways in relation to these accounts, even as they exist, which I can go into what that means in practice, whatever. But the second thing is investigating things that happen with the student body that, that happen over time are actually easier than people think, because these are kids. They make mistakes. You know, Adult criminals make mistakes. So students who are doing things wrong make tons of mistakes. And as somebody who has brought hundreds of students over the years into my office and asked them what they did wrong, you can get students to open up about these things pretty easily, uh, without even threatening them. Uh, because by and large students know a lot. Often they're going to know who are doing these accounts. So that would be the the sort of main series of two of us. I would vigorously energetically pursue the people doing these because it is an affront against the student body, you know, using racial slurs, saying things like stu- other students have STIs. Et cetera. That is like, we're as, as using egregious. racial
1: slurs in someone else's voice too. I mean, that's super defamatory.
0: I would vigorously pursue it, but obviously, some of the things this principal did could be wrong. So let me read you another account from the principal and and this this principal actually sent me a Jonathan Haidt article at the end of this. So height, height article. Haidt. Uh, yeah. so here's here's what this principal said. Uh, don't think there's an easy way. It's an absolute plague, but this is this ain't the move either. It reeks of a desperate administrator. That gets to my swan comment, right? You don't want to look desperate. Uh, in my opinion, part of the solution is a school culture that's psychologically safe for kids and adults, so they report this stuff and stand up to each other. But easy, that is not. I think the other part is that we're way behind as adults who educate and cultivate young minds and explain to kids how to use this stuff, if at all, productively. There's so much good research coming out that's super current about the detrimental effects of social media. And so how do we make that compelling and accessible to kids? Um, so talking about like kind of getting ahead of this uh, even before there's an issue.
1: Yeah, this is a huge problem. Like this was an issue when I was in high school and it also in 2020 like bubbled back up, I think pretty considerably the anonymous aspect of it that was new in 2020. But like there were the issues with people and like their private accounts and and saying things. I mean, my school had a much larger ability to intrude into our lives because we it was a private school but even this goes back to like now that i'm thinking about it like seventh grade for me which would have been like 2012 and i remember this website i don't know if this was ever a millennial thing i'm probably gonna make you sound old but do you know what ask fm was no it was this website where you could like create a profile and then people could anonymously ask you questions onto your profile and then you could like answer them and it became this big issue at my school that we had, you know, there were like people saying kind of like sexual things and we were middle schoolers and so people were going on it with their school laptops. And so I remember one day, this was the, like first time that I ever broke a rule, but I remember one day they brought us in and they sat us down. I don't know if this is, I guess this is, they can do this as a private school because um, they were concerned about predators reaching out to us and stuff when rightfully so. And they sat us, they brought us in one by one. Like I guess they just picked out who they thought were troublemakers. And I was apparently one of them. And they sat me down in front of a laptop. I'd already deactivated my account, but they had my username and they had my username typed into the username box and they asked me to type my password into the password thing to, to reactivate my account so they could go through everything. And I hadn't like I I felt very like I hadn't talked to my parents about this. It's, I didn't feel that this was their business. And so I will go on the record now and say I lied and I said that I had changed my password when I deactivated it and I didn't know it and I couldn't get back in. And I remember that was like the first time that I broke a rule ever in my entire life. But that felt like a huge intrusion into my personal life. I mean, it'd be basically like saying like, put your Instagram account in and show us all of your DMs and stuff as a a school. I don't know. Like, I think schools have been heavy handed about this for a long time and we still even a more than a decade later, don't know how to handle this sort of issue, which has been a thing for quite a long time. And I've seen it destroy people's lives, like the sort of allegations that can go like unresponded to, or, I mean, I can't even imagine being a kid in high school who there's an Instagram post that everyone in the, in the school sees. like, it's worse than a rumor. It's permanent. It's there. It's your name. I mean, it's, it's, this is, ugly, ugly stuff that can put like classic bullying on steroids.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I mean, one other thing I was thinking about is one thing you could do is you could send a letter to parents and then invite them to a forum and say, look, this is what we plan to do about this. Now, reminder that this particular principle is canceling field trips and things like that. That's a pretty strong step, Uh, obviously punishing the very kids who are the victims of this, which is tough. Because you got to assume there's a possibility that there's just one rogue actor who hates everybody who doesn't care about the field trip, right? So it doesn't want to, you know, probably if they're spending all their time attacking their classmates, they might exhibit some other antisocial behavior and maybe don't care about going to the school dance, right? So like, you got to be careful to align your incentives. But one thing I would consider is, and maybe this is just, I'm too aggressive of a personality. I would send a letter to the parents. I would invite them to a meeting and I'd be like, look this is serious. Do we all agree it's serious? Yes. I don't want to do this without your permission. But one thing I was thinking of doing is taking this budget that I've got and paying for an outside investigative firm to help us find out what's going on. And what they're not going to do is they're not going to follow your kids. They're not going to do anything like that. Uh, but there are there are things that a firm can do to help uh, verify where an account is coming from. Uh, are we okay with that? If they say no, then we don't do it. If they say yes, then you do it. And there are things that people can do. Like some of these firms, for instance, can pose as other students, send something into the account, like a link, and hope that they... This is how people verify anonymous social media accounts, generally. You could send a link and hope that they're dumb enough to click on that link. That link gives you the IP address of where the computer's coming from. And that immediately gives you an idea of who this person is. Uh, And so, like these are just some of the things you do. And obviously, like because a principal is in many ways almost like an elected official, you kind of want to get the buy-in from the parents to do that. That's one thing I would consider. And then if they say no, then we're all agreeing as a community that we we don't want to cross that line. But we also agree that we're, we're going to use a more limited set of tools, which means that we may not be able to totally root it out. And at least we're having that conversation. Mm-hmm. That's another thing I would consider.
1: Yeah. My only thought on that is that there's probably a disturbingly high odds that the parent of whoever the individual is would not be the type of parent to show up to one of these meetings potentially and buy in. You that. never know,
0: you know. I like, no. from my experience, like there are lots of parents out there who are doing the right thing or very active or whatever. And for one reason or another, their kids, you know, make humongous mistakes. And you know, given this particular, this is a sophisticated scheme. It's, it's one not thing, really, if it's a
1: mistake. I, I would call this one not so much a mistake.
0: Yeah, I mean. You know, who exhibit sociopathic behavior, right? Like yeah. sometimes, you know, like, you know, some of the world's worst serial killers had totally fine parents, from what we can tell, right? Sometimes yeah. you just have, yes, you, know, you know, people who, have, who are bad eggs. And also, this is like, this is the kind of thing that for sure would lead to expulsion, but it's a digital version of mistakes that a lot of people I know made as kids, which is gossiping about each other, saying hurtful things about each other. You know, back when I was in school, for instance, students who are gay like in the, in the late nineties in high school, like the idea that somebody was gay was like viewed at, like, it, it, you can't even think about how horrible people were to each other in my school. And like a totally well-functioning adult today in Staten Island, you know, most of my friends would have said things that were terrible, but gay people, including people who've turned out to be gay. Right. Uh, and it was like, and as you look back on, it, you're like, oh my God. And like the gossip and the bullying around that kind of stuff was horrible. Uh, And so I think this digital version of it is to say that the people who do this like deserve huge consequences. But my sense is uh, there are probably a lot of kids who are still probably uh, good kids, you know, in the long run who will grow up to be well-functioning adults who are getting mixed up in this kind of stuff because they're kids and kids sometimes do horrible things. And so I do think that although expulsion would probably be the right move for this kind of stuff. Like in the end, like one of the reasons why a principal wants to take this seriously from the the, the question of values in education is that by focusing on values in education, you're assuming that there are actually some good people who are going to get mixed up in this if you don't get to them first. That there actually are persuadable minds to get people to stop. And obviously, on the consumer side of things, that's a huge part of it, right? Like the people consuming this are part of the problem too, right? Because you could say all you want about the people perpetrating it, it would be meaningless if people didn't go to those accounts, right? So, you have to try to get people to choose not to look at those accounts, which I know is really hard.
1: Yeah. One last piece of good news, I suppose, is that one of the two accounts was removed since this letter went out. So, at least there's that. So, there's an interesting and kind of underattended to story coming out of the Justice Department and FDC, which is essentially. The merger guidelines, which don't sound too sexy, but actually have some pretty large reverberations in terms of antitrust law and how the government and courts would treat potential monopolies and large corporations in this country. Um, The merger guidelines have been around for about 50 years, and they were just amended by Lena Kahn, my favorite, and Jonathan Cantor who just lost two big um, high-profile cases, antitrust cases, uh, brought against Meta and Microsoft. But this is a proposal to essentially overhaul, uh, effectively, the guidelines of antitrust in the lines that have been there for for quite a while, um, or at least have been upheld by the court largely, that... It's the only the position of the, the government to go against a potential monopoly if there is consumer harm or if it's hurting the everyday person. And this is a pretty large shakeup to that standard that, at least in my view, I think was a very reasonable one um, based on keeping government out of our our big corporations as much as possible. But it seems like, at least according to them, there's been a lot of hysteria about this change. But to me, my read is that this is actually pretty significant.
0: Yeah, definitely could, uh, significant. And and Jonathan Cantor, who you mentioned, is the DO Trust, uh, DOJ antitrust head and and Khan is the FTC chair. Khan gets a lot more attention, but they're both really important for, for the purposes of antitrust. And you mentioned, you know, Khan has lost some pretty significant cases. And the question is, why does she keep bringing cases uh, and why does she revise these guidelines, knowing full well that the courts are probably not going to see things the way that she does. And I think it's because of deterrence. I think that she sees this like aggressive moves of her agency, including taking cases and losing them as a way to say, look, it is going to be costly to merge in ways that are like in any way, like if you have any questions about it, this is going to slightly tilt against you deciding to merge. And there's some evidence that MA activity has slowed down. Cantor himself has quoted this uh, and has attributed it to their aggressive enforcement action. And that's a huge debate. But I think the most wide-reaching and important change that they've put into these draft guidelines, which are still draft guidelines because there's a public comment period going on right now, is a change to and an abandonment. Of something that longtime listeners of this podcast may remember, because we did a whole segment on it a long time ago, which is the so-called consumer welfare standard. And this was a change in antitrust practice uh, a few decades ago, really with the sort of Chicago School of economics and uh, the Reagan administration, really pioneered by Judge Robert Bork, if you remember, who you know unsuccessfully was nominated as a Supreme Court justice. And essentially, what the consumer welfare standard says. Is that um, the guiding principle is whether there are economic benefits uh, from a combination of businesses that will result in greater operational efficiencies, lower prices, and/or better quality products for consumers? And really, what they do is they really focus on lower prices, saying essentially, if this group comes together, like these companies come together, or a company grows and consolidates an industry. Will it help consumers or not? And basically, that was a change from the way antitrust used to be done, which was essentially saying, how big is a company and big is bad, right? And Kahn and Cantor are essentially trying to go back to the biggest is bad standard. And essentially, the number they've arrived at is 30%. So a firm with a market share of over 30%, according to Kahn and Cantor, presents a, a, a threat of undue concentration regardless of the state of the rest of the market, regardless of the price pressures. And this is really interesting. I have a lot to say about it, but that is the most notable change. There are other changes that they propose around vertical integration and things like that, but this is the big change because this is trying to go back to um, New Deal era, you know, sort of Brandeis type standards of uh, of antitrust enforcement. And that is what I think is notable.
1: Yeah. And also just to briefly touch on the vertical merger situation, which is effectively like not acquiring another company that's doing the exact same thing but acquiring another company or aspect of a company that is like potentially a different part of a supply chain or something and so you're not actually meaningfully impacting anything that's happening to the consumers you're just consolidating a larger process under one umbrella Um, and they are potentially um, opening up the doors to blocking those as something the standard is anything that they decide could quote contribute to a trend toward concentration which like is just absurdly vague in my in my read um and the the political article that inspired us to to talk about this is um their conclusion i thought was very interesting um they said the result could be to undermine the agency's credibility among the judiciary and to exacerbate a losing trend that is already bad enough which effectively means like if they go forth with this there's a a considerable potential that the judiciary just says like no because this is not how at least in my view the american uh the american federal government has interacted with corporations this is this is Considerably vaguer. It's cons- the thirty percent thing feels entirely arbitrary to me because, I mean, a, a company with a twenty nine percent share could be um, attacked over a two percent merger, which is uh, a frightening potential, at least in my view. Um, considering that, I think the consumer welfare standard is just super logical. Like, if if there are higher prices, a reduced output, or diminished quality, that could harm everyday Americans that's the only role in my view of the government stepping in to say okay we need to actually meaningfully change the way that this company is is operating
0: yeah i think a couple of things uh, on the consumer welfare standard i'm actually with con and and as a reminder to the audience, the, the political piece was an opinion piece by a, a former prosecutor so it, it definitely has a spin on it. i think it raises some interesting points but i think by and large I think a lot of this comes down to two things. Do you think they will be effective, which I'll get back around to, meaning Khan and Cantor? And do you think their version of events is sound? And I think as it relates to the consumer welfare standard, I'm with them on this for a couple of reasons. And, and this is, you know, I, I talked about this a long time ago, but um, the consumer welfare standard, I think is super incomplete. So this is a point in time determination, right? does it lower costs now? But it doesn't talk about lowering costs forever. And there's actually a lot of data where the US has allowed mergers to go through in industries where the initial cost picture is one thing, and then over time, costs get out of control, quality gets out of control. This is actually true of the airlines, for instance, where you know something like four major airlines, uh, we have four major airlines in this country, three major cell phone companies up until recently, two dominant makers of coffins. You compare those industries to other countries and regions like the European Union, we pay more for airline costs, we pay more for the internet, and in many ways have worse service. And so this point in time determination is not a good one. Courts are not well equipped to do that. It's also true that lower prices don't capture the full range of consumer interests. And, and this gets to the quality of a service, right? Like the courts just really don't even attempt to be experts on whether the quality of a service has gone up or down. Uh, the third is that it's, uh, they ignore the impact on suppliers. So if there's one player in the industry or one dominant player or a few dominant players in the industry, they can bully suppliers. It ignores the labor market. If there's one major player in an industry, they have like full control over the compensation. People can't leave. They can't go to other places. Um, they can sort of force people into non-compete agreements, which is something that Khan has been interested in. And this is my, the most important one, which is, I think they fail to account for the digital era. So uh, often products are quote unquote free. So when we say that they're, are they making it cheaper or not? This is important for Google, for example, right? Google could just be like, Hey, this is in the consumer's interest. I can control hundred percent of search activity because I don't charge for it. But of course the advertising is how they make their money. and. Under uh, a certain version of the consumer welfare standard, Google could have 100% market share. They don't charge anything. So what is there to say? And the court is going to have no way of saying whether Google is a higher or lower quality. And Google would argue that actually with everybody on their search, the search gets better because they have more data to work with. Uh, And I think that's uh, a troubling development and gets to my final piece, which is power is not just about price. Power is about democracy. It's about freedom of speech. It's about coercion. Uh, and often having concentrated players in certain industries. A good example is the meatpacking industry. The meatpacking industry, which there's something like four players dominate the meatpacking industry, the uh, and meat processing industry, is not just bad for prices. It's not just bad for quality, but it's bad for a whole host of other reasons, including transparency. Right? Like, why can't we ever get videos anymore of factory farming practices it's because a few players control these places and don't allow you in? So. I don't know. That's that's me. I can talk a little bit about whether they'll succeed or not, but I'm with them on the change of this law. I actually do think everything's going to seem arbitrary, right? Deciding what's a, a reasonable price increase or not, or what's quality or not is going to be an arbitrary distinction too. I, I do like the idea of saying concentration of power is bad, full stop. We have an interest in stopping it.
1: I will disagree with you on that front largely, but um, there's a comment period right now and um, a potential, I mean, the the reactions have been kind of diverse across the board. Um, obviously, the private sector is not super into this. A lot of progressives are into this. Um, a couple Obama officials uh, wrote a, an op-ed criticizing it. So what is your, as this comment period um, dwindles, what is your outlook on whether or not um, they will stick by this roadmap?
0: I think they will stick by it. And I think this is a long-term play. So if you look at where we how we even got the consumer welfare standard, it was it started with academics and you know, people like the Chicago School, Federal Society, and it was a losing effort until it was a winning effort. Then certain judges got confirmed, the politics embraced it on the right, uh, and then it became the dominant mode of thinking. And I think that's what Lena Khan and others like her are banking on, is not a short victory, but the beginning of a narrative. Where now uh, what they will probably argue for is, hey, if you're a judge and you're going up before the Senate for confirmation, Elizabeth Warren is going to ask you about what you think about the consumer welfare standard. And if you don't have the right answer, she's not going to confirm you, right? If you're taking a job at the Department of Justice involving antitrust,
1: mm-hmm. we're going to ask
0: you about this. And then there's going to be the you know the next Lena Khan, the student sitting in a law school right now is going to write papers about it. It's going to become a dominant conversation. And yes, the courts may slap them down, but again, it'll still have a chilling effect on the mergers that they want to have it on. And this you know, takes into account that the, these guidelines, by and large, have been followed by companies up until now. So for the past 25 years, when regulators have challenged mergers in court, the merging firms themselves have voluntarily accepted the guidelines. So basically, the guidelines have been kind of gospel. I, I suspect that could change right now. But the guidelines, though... You know, not dispositive are very powerful. So I actually think this is a, the a very powerful opening salvo in a move to redo the consumer welfare standard. And you know, I think I'm I think I'm with them on it. I I, I do want to reserve judgment a little bit on some of the other pieces that they've proposed, including the v- vertical integration pieces. And where there there are certain standards that I'm not fully uh, you know on board with, but on this piece, I'm with them.
1: Well, I'm sure that we will be back with an update on the status of this proposal shortly. Um, and in the meantime, thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Leave us a voicemail if we've sparked any uh, thoughts in your mind. 321-200-0570. And we will be back with a new episode on Thursday. <laughs>